Greetings, rare ones. My name is Joanne, and I started the Rare Birds podcast because I wanted to hear from people like myself who come from emerging markets or the developing world, as we're called, who are entrepreneurial, resourceful, passionate, and energized to take their vision from idea to startup. Each week, you will hear me interview founders and teams from across emerging markets who are in the early stages of building their businesses. From time to time, you will also hear me speak with established ecosystem builders, mentors, investors, and business professionals who share knowledge based on their years of experience. This podcast is for anyone who is interested in hearing from the next wave of change makers across emerging markets, building in various industries from agro to tech to health, beauty, and all in between. This podcast is also for those who have ideas, but they're not entirely sure how to make them a reality. They're looking for inspiration and encouragement. We call ourselves Rare Ones. And if this sounds like you, then welcome to the family. Sit back, relax, and listen in to our always so good conversation. Bye for now. Hello, Rare Ones, and welcome back to the Rare Birds Podcast. Welcome new friends who are listening in. I invite you to join us moving forward on the journey. Okay, so we are now on Series 2, and Series 2 is titled Broken Worlds Thinking. Now, Broken Worlds Thinking is based on the idea that we live in an imperfect world. Things don't always work the way they should or the way they're expected to, especially if you're from the developing world where nothing usually works. (laughs) And anybody who's lived or worked in the developing world knows that all too well. So um, as I have these three discussions with these three very different Ethiopian young men who work in three very different but connected fields, I would like you to apply the concept of broken worlds thinking to imagine how we could potentially redesign the subject matter that we're discussing, okay? I know it's such a heavy, such a heavy task, but we have, this is why we, this is why we share, and this is why I podcast, because it's all about getting people to think on a deeper level, right? Okay, so Hidawai Ephraim, okay, now I may have pronounced that incorrectly, and I'm terribly sorry to all Ethiopians, and friends of Ethiopia. Please forgive me. I'm so bad with pronouncing um, his name. He did give me a little session, but I'm I'm just not good at all, and I'm terribly sorry. Okay, so Hidawai and I had an excellent conversation about understanding the investment landscape. He is based here in China. However, he uh, is from Ethiopia. He identifies as an Ethiopian-American because he moved to the U.S. when he was nine years old. Uh, I won't get into too much of his bio because it's um, something that we discussed in the podcast itself, so you can listen in to hear it. And his bio is listed completely on the website as well as on the other platforms. But I will say this. He's very well-versed in the investment um, scene. He understands how things work very well. He is currently an investment analyst at SOSV. He's been a mentor with WeWork, a program manager at AngelVest. He's done due diligence, um, worked with startups, developing business models, revenue models, exit strategies. You name it, he's done it. So I was so grateful to be able to have him on to share with us. 
and to get us to apply broken world's thinking to 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 this this investment landscape, especially as um, this platform is catered towards women, as you know, the conversations are always about the funding gap around women, and the conversations have become so redundant now that it just seems like maybe nothing's happening, or maybe we feel like nothing's happening quick enough. So we have to perhaps come up with solutions to our own problems. We can't solve things overnight, but it's good to have conversations about things. I will let you know the conversation with him does not uh, touch on women. We only talk about it at the end. It's more about how investment works. And we talk about the difference between um, incubators and accelerators and angel investing versus um, venture capitalists. So all the things that we need to know in these early stages as aspiring entrepreneurs, emerging entrepreneurs, or entrepreneurs who've just kicked things off, okay? So listen in, enjoy, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Hello, Hiroi, and welcome to the Rare Birds podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Ah, I'm so... Uh, thankful for you to be for being on the program. So welcome, welcome. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation because it's one I've been trying to have for quite some time. So it's good to actually have you on to discuss angel investing, the basics. That's great. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to give my insights. You know, I've only been in the game not too long, but uh, I think I've along the way I've been able to learn a few things that I think can be shared to anyone willing to learn. So I'm yes, excited. Absolutely. So well that's me and that's my audience. Before we begin though, would you mind telling us a little bit about you, your background, where you're from, and how you ended up here in China? Sure. So uh I'm I was born in Ethiopia. Uh, and then moved to the United States when I was nine and then grew up there in Washington, D.C. area, specifically Arlington, Virginia. So I guess you can say the early part of my childhood was born and raised in Ethiopia and then adolescence uh, and teenagers were more in the U.S. So a bit of a dual culture there. And then uh i went to a college called middlebury college which is a liberal arts school up in vermont so in the north side of northeast side of the country and it's known for its language programs so a lot of uh linguistically talented folks and etc do make their way up there and i just ended up going there because it was a really good school and i decided that'd be good for my future to spend some time there and while I was there I knew I wanted to study economics I knew I wanted to study a language and I knew that I wanted to spend at least some time abroad so along the way uh, I took econ economics courses decided to learn Mandarin because at the time I was super interested in Sino-African relations and uh, knew that I was going to study abroad and I later on ended up studying in uh, Beijing but then along the way I also discovered uh, I have an interest for politics I took some uh, politics courses and we had this cool major at our school called international politics and economics which basically is 
a joint major between the economics department and the policy department and uh, your electives and concentrations generally are of an international focus. You're also required to study a language and you're also required to study abroad. And so it really fit my general mold. Uh, so I did that. And so I studied abroad uh, in Beijing, spent a semester there, and then got a chance to intern at this company called uh, Xiaonio, or in English, their full name is uh, Beijing Neo Technologies. And it's basically a startup, and uh, it's basically a startup, and it's known for its e-bike scooters, uh, mm. which are roaming around uh, Beijing these days, and. Uh, so I got a chance to work there and kind of dip my feet into the startup world there. Um, and along the way is also I decided that, hey, you know, my interest in Sino-African relations, I guess you can say, wind down a bit more. But my interest in China still prevailed. And upon graduating, I wanted to come to, the, to China afterwards. And so looking for gigs my senior year. Uh, and uh, they were tough to find from the States. But luckily, after graduating, uh, I had a lot of I had a, a decent amount of graduation money that I was planning to use to fund my trip to China and to network and find a, a job and to do something. Along the way, I decided to go to Beijing. But on the way to Beijing, uh, I spent like about a month in Singapore. And during that time, I actually linked up with a guy who... Um, was one of the, I guess you can say, the, the directors of uh, this company called AngelVest, which is basically a network of angel investors. It's like a group of angel investors. And he was based in Shanghai. He also ran China Accelerator, uh, which is an accelerator based in Shanghai as well. And through, uh, upon some conversations, I was able to actually land an internship with AngelVest. And so just like that, my plans to go to Beijing shifted over to Shanghai. And... I was very excited to to get involved in the startup both from that sense. Uh, I thought it was very brilliant to be able to see it from the investor perspective. I think uh, it's a very, very hard way, um, very hard perspective to gain. And so mm -hmm. I thought it was amazing in that sense. And so as an intern, uh, I worked pretty hard to add value to the group. And a lot of times, uh, you know, the work had a very stagnant flow, but there was room for for adding value. And so for me, where added value was by finding startups, uh, sourcing companies. And so what I did was develop relationships with the ecosystem around here and uh, Hong Kong as well, and uh, Singapore as well, briefly, because we had a group, we had a branch in Singapore as well. And so I was able to just find a bunch of startups that way. And then along the way, uh, I was offered a full-time job and in the end, ended up actually becoming the only employee for the firm. And so I was pretty much wearing a lot of hats uh, mm. as a program manager. So uh, primarily I was sourcing deals, helping with follow-up, coaching entrepreneurs, uh, doing investor relations, some marketing, uh, due diligence. So helping with uh, research on certain companies and certain industries uh, mm. so that if we ever decided to do an investment, I'm actually involved in writing the report and making sure it's circulated around the whole group to see that to see if there's an interest in a specific uh, investment. And so that's the, how I got into angel investing and um, the venture capital world. 
it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, after some time, the experience definitely did plateau and wanted to take a, a leap forward in, 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 in venture capital. And luckily enough, since I was working with the managing director of China Accelerator, I was offered a job at China Accelerator. And now I'm an analyst at this firm called SOSV. SOSV stands for Sean O'Sullivan Ventures, the venture capital that invest via its network of accelerators. So, mm-hmm. so just like any typical fund, it has it has a set of money, you know, it has money. And mm-hmm. instead of deploying it directly to startups, what it does is it runs these accelerators, such as China Accelerator and those uh, and, and and IndieBio and those guys. Mm-hmm. And those accelerators pick companies and they become the vehicle for investment. And then along the way, those companies that are picked get accelerated. Uh, which means, which really just means that they ha- get a bunch of support on their business model, their growth, their growth strategies, business development, etc., and go through the program, a structured program that makes them a bit more geared towards entrepreneurship. Uh, and then after that, they're released into the world, and hopefully, they make money. So, one of the coolest parts about the, this job is you get to work with a bunch of different founders. And uh, before I joined, um, Shining Accelerator uh, uh, invested in this company called Bitmex, which is the only unicorn in Asia to come out of an accelerator program. Uh, and, and generally, like obviously, the, you know, Asia has some unicorns already, but it's quite mm-hmm. unique that we're able to get to be able to be uh, investors in one of the only unicorns to come out of Asia. So that's kind of cool, and that's uh, one of the claims to fame that China Accelerator already has. And mm-hmm. uh, China Accelerator has been, you know, a home for many famous startups that are around Shanghai as well. One of them being Two Four Seven Tickets, which a lot of uh, foreigners in Shanghai actually use to buy tickets around the city. So uh, that's kind of cool. So China Accelerator doesn't pack on the Shanghai startup ecosystem. It's quite big, and it's great to be part of that. Uh, world. So it's a new job. I just started about a month ago, but I'm quite familiar with the venture capital scene and I have spent, you know, a couple of years in the angel investing world. So I'm very much excited to share my insight as to, you know, how angels uh, think and really how the process works and debunk some myths that may already exist. So that's that. And that's, I guess, the long winded version of my background. And Wow. That sounds very dynamic. So how long have you been in China in terms of total number of years? How long has it been? So eight months in Beijing when I was a student and two months, uh, two years and some months, I guess, close to three years. Oh, okay. Close to three years total. Similar to me because I've been here now for two years and three months. Okay. Yeah. Not too far apart. Yeah, 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 definitely. And for those who don't know, China Accelerator is a... You want to explain to us what exactly it is and what it does? Sure. Yeah. So it's an accelerator. And an accelerator is basically... The way I like to think about it is like an incubator with a with a curriculum. So incubators, mm-hmm. as most people probably know, are just basically these hubs for startups. Mm-hmm. You might as well think of them as like a co-working space, but the difference is that they actually come with a bunch of resources and new mentors, et cetera. And so like mm-hmm. China Accelerator, same concept, but it's on top of it, you have 
a curriculum. Uh, and for us, our curriculum is three months long. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have like in-house experts and a team that's very much dedicated and, and committed to the startups for those three months to go through various checkpoints and 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 do various experiments and validate some of their assumptions, etc. A bunch of different exercises around like validating their business um, mm-hmm. if it hasn't been already, helping them, hoping to for them to find product market fit, which means like their product has a significant need and there's a market for it. And uh, in addition to that, like plugging them into a bunch of our resources uh, that could hopefully accelerate their business um, and take them forward. So that's why that's what an accelerator is. And so, and then on top of that, we take equity uh, mm-hmm. down the line. Yeah. Uh, the legal stuff in between is quite hairy because um, mm-hmm. we actually do a lot of our deals via convertible notes, etc. So that means they actually convert much later. But generally speaking, we end up being investors and as the company grows down the line, we actually become, you know, shareholders of the company, uh, proper mm-hmm. shareholders of the company uh, mm-hmm. in the traditional sense. And yeah, so that's the difference between accelerators and incubators, generally speaking. Accelerators usually invest and uh, take equity and get, provide a service and a program and a whole curriculum around it. Mm-hmm. And that's what China Accelerator does. Uh, there are some accelerators that don't actually take equity. A uh, famous one is called Mass Challenge, it's based out of Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's government backed. And, and um, again, they're quite well known, right? There's a bunch of accelerators in the world that are very well known, like 500 Startups, Y Combinator, Techstars, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. Mass Challenge is one of the ones that has a big name as well, but they're unique in the sense that they don't take equity. Uh, mm-hmm. But instead, like they make a lot of their money through corporate sponsorships, and they become like a, I guess you can say a startup dealer to <laughs> a bunch of corporates that are looking to uh, understand uh, the startup ecosystem. So there right. are different models around the world, but generally speaking, that's a good way to understand accelerators. Uh, an incubator Whereas, with a yeah. curriculum. An incubator with a curriculum, because an incubator is where you go to with just your idea, and they kind of try to help you get it off the ground and build your model. Is that correct? That's one way to think about it. Um, I think maybe that's probably the more glorified, uh, the more glorified way of thinking about incubators. But there are some incubators that are mm. just again like workshops for startups, right? So you can have a proper right. startup, the team, right. etc., and. Uh, I guess the line is blurred between co-working space and that, uh, mm-hmm. but usually I guess incubators don't have the walls and stuff like that, that an office would. It's just a bunch of tables and startups can be based out of there. And just depending on how it's run, um, people can just get there and work on it. And, and yeah, uh, I think traditionally speaking, incubators are associated with like super early startups that Again, mm. a couple of folks have an idea and they're just workshopping it. Yeah. So when it's at that level, uh, you know, incubators are quite early in that sense. And then some accelerators are equally as early as well. Uh, for us, primarily speaking, a lot of the companies that do come into our program so far usually have at least a product already down and they have a team and some of them have already fundraised before. Some have already have revenue. Uh, mm. A couple of times we've had companies that already are profitable, right? So, accelerate. Mm. I think the main goal is just accelerate and to just again propel growth. Right, so exactly. Incubators, right. I guess, are are 
you can think of them as like workshops for a certain idea and that's kind of usually what they're associated with but uh but you know definitions are as you know as uh, as spread out as people are so you'll uh, yeah they're quite fluid you can find all types of things yeah I've always seen the incubator as before the accelerator. So the incubators, I've, in my mind, I've always had it like, okay, you incubate the idea, like an incubator mm. that for an for an egg, for a baby, right? You yeah. incubate the idea, you, ha- you sort of try to get it off the ground. Whereas the accelerator is established business model, which has generated, you know, it's profitable, it's, gener- it's generating the revenues, whatnot, and it mm. needs to grow. So you accelerate it and it grows fast. And then, like you said, you take some equity because you're essentially giving up some ownership of your company. That's yeah. kind of how I've always seen it in my mind. And I think that's how it happens for the most part, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but there's quite, always quite nuanced, right? There's later stage incubators. There's also like super early stage accelerators as well, where people just do it as individuals without any ideas. So Got it. Uh, they're all around. Sh- but generally speaking, and- the way you describe it is usually how it goes. Okay. And China accelerators for foreign companies that want to break into the Chinese market. Is that correct? It's actually both. It's a cross-border internet accelerator. So it's primarily internet-based companies. And, you know, we help Chinese companies go abroad, but then also foreign companies come in as well. That's how it is an idea. I think more recently, we've been kind of towards leaning a bit more towards uh, foreign startups that are super cross-border. That means their businesses can operate in various different countries and uh, take him here to also just teach him the the Chinese method of doing business because the China playbook is, for example, what's really being used and successful in Southeast Asia, right? Mm -hmm. For example, like how Tencent scaled, how Alibaba scaled and those kind of things, like those frameworks of understanding business, Mm -hmm. which are still relatively new to uh, the business world and are effectively a different type of business acumen. Mm-hmm. Expose them to that, and yeah, they're here for six months. And if they want to come to China, perfect. Uh, we we can help and assist in that. Obviously, it's very difficult as an early stage startup to come into China because you have to burn a lot of cash, etc., to really be competitive with the local market, and you have to further localize. Especially if you're coming from a different market, it's always best yeah. to to be dominant in your own local market. But I think uh, we believe there's a lot to learn from China, and uh, in the sense. You kind of do see that profile of startups kind of coming in, but we also have our uh, our uh, local companies as well, um, a few every batch. So that's both. It's just cross-border okay. internet startups. That's one way to think about it. Okay, got it. Now to begin, what is angel investing? What is it? Totally. Um, yes. So usually, my foot in the door to this conversation is usually. Asking people if they've seen the show Shark Tank or if oh, they've God, seen yeah. the show Dragons Den, right? So those two are mm. a good way of thinking about what angel investing is. Uh, so for the Americans, Shark Tank is like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, for the Europeans, I found that Dragons Den is what's up. The Brits, Everyone the else has, has no reference to what those shows are. Basically, mm-hmm. they're just really high net worth individuals that invest in a startup. They're individuals, mm-hmm. right? They're not an entity. They're not a company. They're not a venture capital firm. They're literally just mm-hmm. individuals, right? People like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like name a couple of billionaires, but people like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, high net worth individuals that have the ability to drop a few 
thousand dollars on a business to help them get somewhere. And so mm-hmm. that's how that the shows prevent pre- pre- um, describe them. Mm-hmm. But angel investors are actually, again, generally speaking, people that have a bit of a high net worth. Uh, for our criteria, for angel invest criteria, it's uh, people that have at least like a, an annual income of two hundred USD a year, or have like assets net worth of uh, one million USD. Uh, mm-hmm. So people that have you know, that are accredited, that are have the ability, the financial ability to just invest in startups. And so the, they're called angel investors because historically, back in the Silicon Valley, like, I don't know, maybe the 60s, 70s, maybe even mm-hmm. earlier, when when that area was, when that era was popping, where companies are coming up in, in that area, these, these investors, these early stage investors ended up getting title angel investors because in a way, they're like angels. They are they're giving you money before you're really proven. And um, mm. anyone who's who's calculated enough in the risk world realizes that investing in startups is a terrible idea because the returns are always pretty bad. But you're mm. always hoping that you invest in a one good one that'll uh, pay a, pay off all your mistakes that you've done before, right? Investing in the wrong ones, etc. And there's right. so many factors that uh, allow for a startup to succeed beyond the competency of the founder and the, the viability of the, of the business. So for that reason, it's kind of crazy to be to be an investor and uh, for startups especially. And so angel mm-hmm. investors are those that invest at the early stage. Uh, very much, I guess, w- where the rest of the world believes you're still kind of an unproven model. And... Mm. Uh, invest and so usually when companies get started and i'm sure some of your listeners are aspiring or current entrepreneurs the very mm-hmm. first people that you can't you went to to raise money from can literally be called angel investors because they're investing in an idea or they're investing in a very unproven business so that's where kind of the term comes from and so over the years, it's become a very, I guess you can say, organized sort of uh, thing to do. Uh, in the mm-hmm. U.S., these things called angel groups started forming, which mm-hmm. are basically like where angels kind of invest together. And that's how our group kind of came along as well. We, Our group, Angel Vest, came from this organization called AAMA, which stands for Asia America Multi-Technological Association. And then it came from mm-hmm. the Shanghai branch. So mm-hmm. it's a bunch of folks that work in tech in the area and decided, hey, why don't we come together and invest in tech startups together? And the importance mm-hmm. of investing together so that you can always you can leverage the the network for uh, your gaps of understanding, right? So for example, let's say I'm quite familiar with fintech and you're mm-hmm. quite familiar with uh, software, right? Mm-hmm. SaaS products, SaaS businesses. And if mm-hmm. a company that fits both those criteria comes, we can both evaluate it and then we can use our experience to better evaluate it because we're not going to be a victim of our own bias and our own ignorance. And mm. that's kind of the model of angel of angel groups which are basically right. these groups that invest together. And so the way it works at AngelVest is companies apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a committee that looks through the deals through the, and deals are called basically companies like investment opportunities, right? Therefore a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a committee that looks at the deals. They choose the top ones that they think would be interesting, you know, not only to them but to the group as well. Uh, we mm-hmm. organize a pitch event. Uh, investors show up. 
they listen and pitches are quite short usually right like 10 minutes uh so you reserve some time for questions and then you discuss amongst each other like hey what do you guys think about that pitch i feel like there's there's some, some some key things that are addressed here i feel like there's some opportunities here yada 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 and then we take a tally as to who wants to follow up. We also send out the notes in the recording for those that may not be able to attend. And generally, like, yeah, we just gather a bunch of folks together to do due diligence together and uh, they invest together. So that means also entrepreneurs get a, a various amounts of checks as opposed to just an individual check from one person, right? So if an entrepreneur would just pitch once and would, uh, Know, and then we do due diligence as they would with a regular venture capital firm, but instead it would just be with a group of people uh, that demonstrate interest, etc. And so that's kind of the model of the whole angel group. And some people do it like in a more social sense, kind of like kind of like we do. Yeah. Uh, and then there's other ones that kind of just do it purely online, right? Like a big famous one in the U.S. Is called Sandhill Angels. Mm. Uh, and Sand Hill is like a road in San Francisco where like all the big VC firms are. And um, I guess that's part of their brand. They call them Sand Hill Angels. And it's just a bunch of angels. And they're, they have this platform. They have this, they have their own dashboard. And, they, and all the deals kind of like pop into there. And they kind of just choose which deals they want to go into. And in a way, it becomes like a pseudo crowdfunding sort of um, tool. But mm. individual angels. And they have like, I guess they have a minimum ticket. Etc. A ticket meaning like a minimum investment amount that they have to invest if they decide to invest in a startup. So it also maintains the credibility of the organization, right? Like mm. if an organization has angels that don't invest that much, sometimes it may not look as good because an entrepreneur, right. why would I go to that angel group when I can go to another group, right? Stuff like that. And so okay. that's kind of mm. the ecosystem of angel investing that exists these days. So essentially, they give you money and you sell them equity in your company. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. like a typical investment, right? Like as you would with any sort of investor, right? Um, yes. So. Uh, and then you can also structure deals in different ways too, right? So. Okay. That's okay. like a good way of like talking about it. Uh, mm -hmm. You the, you give them money. They give you a certain ownership of the business. You become owner of a business, just like as you would if you buy stocks on the stock market. You become, you buy a few stocks of Amazon. You become a shareholder of Amazon, albeit super small. Uh, same thing here. It's just you get a chance to get in early, and where the money really comes in is, you know, if you invested in Amazon in the '90s when Jeff Bezos was creating it, I think mm -hmm. in the '90s, right? Yeah. Uh, your the, the that ownership you would had would be worth so much more, right? So a lot, just like the early investors in Google. I think Shaquille O'Neal was one of the early investors in Google. Somehow, mm -hmm. uh, he's an example of an angel investor, right? Shaquille O'Neal, the famous basketball player who made his millions playing basketball and endorsements, etc. Along the way, mm -hmm. has had access to some deal flow, right? Some some exposure to some startups. Heard about mm -hmm. these guys that are doing Google from some of his friends. <laughs> Uh, yeah. There's potential angels themselves, and they're like, hey, Shaq, check this out. It might be an interesting deal. Tell him about the search engine that they're building. And he's like, yeah, sure. I have, you know, I have some money to spare. If I lose it, I won't, I'll still be able to, you know, feed my family. <laughs> so uh, yeah. he invests, and then fast forward, look at Google now, right? Yeah. Or should I say, look at Alpha. That's what they call themselves now. So okay. that's kind of my, you wanna, you're, you're trying to get into the best deals early. 
and uh, geography to a certain degree matters, right? Like, so if you're an angel investor based in San Francisco, you'll see a lot of the hot deals right away because there's so many entrepreneurs in San Francisco, right? Um, Part of it is because the talent is there and you have a bunch of like really cool developers or talented business people that work with somebody and they decide, hey, actually, I want to do my own thing. And then they do their own thing and with that small network can get a, a following going and usually a lot of the software development you hire developers you hire in san francisco i would say they're pretty talented compared to other markets mm-hmm. i'm sure like if you ask people in sf they they might have their own complaints like no it's not as good as it sounds whatever mm-hmm. but the talent pool is quite there right and that's why you know that's why a lot of the big tech companies ended up going there because Berkeley and Stanford University have been able to produce a lot of really cool, talented developers that could bring these great tech solutions. And then down the line, they're bound to create some something. And if you're there, if you're at the right place, right time, and if you know the right people, you get access to the right deals right away before they're even available to the market. And that's how you make your billions as a, as, 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 as a show talks about. There's a show called Billions. I don't know what channel it's on. It might be Showtime, might be HBO. But that's kind of what okay. that talk we talk about. Um, and this oh showtime, so that's in the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, billions okay. actually no billions. Maybe it's a different. Maybe it's not addressed that specifically, uh, but like Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, the show Silicon Valley, I think that's on Netflix, is a great mm-hmm. example of like these dynamics. Okay, okay. Now everything has pros and cons, positives and mm-hmm. negatives. So can you give us a, a kind of walk us through the positives and the negatives of angel investing from the investee side? So being the startup. Oh, the pros and cons. Okay, from the investee. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We already know. Uh, I mean, we are, we kind of already know the investor. I mean, actually, you probably could could touch on that a bit. But I guess because our audience are more on that side, it'd be more beneficial to them to hear that perspective. Sure. I guess, yeah. and I think. I mean, learning, what I learned through my work so far is that actually getting a chance to learn about both sides is the, the most beneficial. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought I thought investing was pretty straightforward for a long time. And I used to watch Shark Tank when I was a college student as well. And that mm, that only scratches the surface. I think really being in the conversations with angels and how they, they analyze startups and to a certain degree, how much of it is actually like pure expertise. And how much mm. of it was just emotion is hilarious to me. It's quite a, yeah. quite a, insightful. And I think entrepreneurs for sure uh, would gain value in, in that perspective. But from the right. investee perspective as well, like the pros and cons, pros are obviously uh, you, it's money. Money's always mm. good. Uh, mm. It's very rare that money's bad. One of the rare ways money could be bad is again, if, if your legal structure is pretty bad, like uh, how they decide to, set up the terms etc because that could be pretty bad uh but those are a bit more extreme i think uh it's always good to have a good lawyer and and be savvy on mm-hmm. how to structure those kind of deals and a lot of that is again how much you read up on the game of investing yeah uh but yeah the pros is just money and then obviously if you, uh, the type of angels you get as well like they're most likely high net worth individuals right and high net worth individuals as we all know it's what a lot of like people complain about are super well connected. Yeah. So because they're super well connected, they can open a lot of doors. Uh, yeah. 
you can argue the same thing about venture capital firms as well. Like that's kind of where their value add comes from as well. Like these venture capital firms exist because they're able to fundraise a bunch of money from wealthy folks, right? Uh, LPs, limited partners, as they call them. People that fundraise yeah. into the pool fund that they then use to invest in startups. But yeah. the difference with angels that, yeah, it's just individuals. Uh, but the same the same dynamics apply where they can be great access to, to, to potential customers, potential leads. They're awesome at opening doors uh, for business development. Guidance. Guidance is very big, right? A lot of times these angel investors. They mentor are, you, don't they? They mentor you. And they themselves a lot of times are former entrepreneurs or they have, have had stints in entrepreneurship, right? The only reason why they would decide to use like angel investing as a means, as a financial instrument demonstrate that they have a little bit of excitement towards entrepreneurship and have a lot of research, uh, have a lot of knowledge to share, right? I say mm-hmm. this because, again, I, I think startups do need to realize that investors, one of their main goals, whether it's number one or number two, very rarely it's number three, mm-hmm. one or two, number one, number two <laughs> goal is always to make money, right? They're investing yeah, to make money. They're not, they're not just donating. Otherwise, it would just be a donation, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there wouldn't Charity. be these terms aligned to it. Exactly, exactly. There, otherwise, there would there would not be these terms and these equity and all those other things tied to these investments. It would just mm-hmm. be a donation, right? Mm-hmm. So, startups need to realize that too many investors, whether parent or not, are financial instruments. Which means mm-hmm. they're investing in you because they think, hey, this is super risky. Like, I may have known you for a little bit, but I'm you know, I like what you're building. I like what you're working on. I, I think you're the person for this issue that you're trying to solve. So there might be some personal passion behind it. But at the end of the day, they're investing, hoping that you make it well, and then they can actually profit off of your success. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's variations I- of that. And some some investors are, like, super friendly on on the entrepreneur, right? Like, the whole idea of, like, making money or whatever may not be, like, super forefront in their interests but it for sure is because otherwise like i said it would otherwise be a donation and then other investors again are like looking to arbitrage the market meaning like hey clearly like there is this need in this market i'm not the one to fill it clearly but there because i'm maybe i have family i have kids etc there's a lot of reasons why i'm not doing this but but there may be this entrepreneur that i find that is arbitraging this interesting need in this market and then i'm going to invest in them with with the hope that they actually make it up make it make it make it and then you know i'll cash out accordingly and then i make my money so end of the day Mm. to investors startups are financial instruments and i think startups need to realize that right uh i think many movies and books etc glorify the whole idea of like you're passionate about this certain idea you want to fix a certain problem you have this passion you have this thing whatever and that's great. It is a, a an evaluation point between investors, but that does not nearly weigh as much as many entrepreneurs think. And I know this because I talk to entrepreneurs, and I'm in the and I'm in the conversation between investors and entrepreneurs. A lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs try to pitch me on their dream, and I'm like, cool. A, a dream is nothing without, again, like some of the, some of the, some of the core business fundamentals behind it. And mm-hmm. angel, like seasoned angel investors realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they become seasoned because they make a lot of a lot of they've made a lot of mistakes themselves, right? Like they realize they may have invested in a couple of deals where 
maybe they just realize, hey, passion may not be the only fuel that will make a company successful. There's actually like core business fundamentals that need to be addressed. Uh, founders need to have an unfair advantage, right? Mm. Like, why are they the ones to be successful in building this? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, those sort of things need to be addressed for under- for founders as well. And then, I guess, to go back to your original question about the pros and cons, and the cons is sometimes, like, the money from angel investors may not be that much. You may spend an equal amount of time talking back and forth, et cetera, doing due diligence, as you would with maybe a venture capital firm. But mm-hmm. their ticket sizes are smaller. So you have to play the game of, like, cool, this angel investor may not be, you know, giving me the $1 million or the $100,000 that I might need right now to take mm-hmm. my company to the next level. But they could be an interesting asset to my business, and I have to leverage them, and I have to use them. So the pros might just be, again, like, there may not be enough money to come in directly from angel investors. But generally speaking, it's always pretty good. Okay. I love that you, the way you worded that, because I think that's such a brilliant way to say it. A financial instrument, meaning investing in your startup is no different to investing in real estate or stocks or bonds or anything else, diamonds, gold. <laughs> I mean, you are a financial instrument. You are a tool to to that they're investing in with the hopes that they're going to get a return. And that's it. And I think that's brilliant. That's true. And I think a lot of um, innovation purists, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> innovation I, I, I kind of made that, that term up, but that's actually, I think it really <laughs> addresses that, right? Like innovation purists are the ones that talk about like, again, the passion of building a, solving a problem, right? A good person yeah. to potentially label as that is maybe the Gary Vaynerchuk or Vaynerchuk. Oh, yeah. I can't, mm-hmm. I forget how to say his last name, but Vayner, Vaynerchuk, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's a very polarizing figure. You either love him or you hate him. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. And I think one, so in fact, one of our entrepreneurs in residence here in Chad X Writer has very mm-hmm. similar, I guess, speaking cadence and I guess maybe like p- passion or, or about businesses as he does. So it's yeah. interesting. Again, he's also like a pseudo polarizing fig- figure as well, but yeah. he I've seen a lot of his videos, um, and you know I, I admire his ability, his to be a KOL in this in this world, like a key influencer, key opinion leader. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he said something that I thought was super fascinating um, some months ago, maybe even a year ago. Uh, mm-hmm. He talked about how he doesn't like venture capital anymore because it has become a financial instrument. And I'm like, mm. interesting, right? It's wow. Because I guess at, at its core and the way financial venture capital brands itself is, hey, we are capital for people that are trying to build these ventures. And we give this pool of money so that they solve these interesting problems. And if we make money out of it, great. That's kind mm-hmm. of how VC sort of like plays its game now, right? But mm-hmm. if you're in the game, one of the things you realize is, again, like people are just trying to get onto the hottest deal hop onto it and make bank out of it. And yeah. and uh, I think luckily, and also unfortunately for a lot, a lot of people, the whole WeWork saga is a huge example of that. Oh boy. Where, yeah. mm-hmm. where I mean, for those that may not be aware, right? Like WeWork, the big co-working space uh, company, uh, you know, tried to IPO recently and had a ridiculous valuation and some of its underlying business fundamentals are just not truly there. 
But they were able to raise so much money from venture capitalists because, I guess, similar to the housing crisis, like just a bad deal kept being passed on to the next round, to the next round, to the next round. And Mm -hmm. the investors in those rounds were hoping to jump ship accordingly, meaning like they get their exit, right? An exit is a term we call like when you enter at some point of the company's stage and then somebody else buys out your stake later on or at IPOs, you're able to make that difference, right? Uh, So that's what we call an exit. And usually that happens either by a company getting acquired, they either IPO or like some bigger, the next bigger VC buys out your stake. And so... Uh, mm. clearly, like SoftBank had a big stake in WeWork. They invested, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think 10 billion USD uh, mm. into WeWork, which is a ridiculous amount for a venture capital firm to invest in mm. because some there, there aren't even that many venture capital funds with that much capital as their base, as their base fund, let yeah. alone to be able to invest that much in one deal. Like, that's imagining... Imagine putting your entire net worth on, like, a gamble, right? Mm. And it became a whole saga for them because, like, again, their their exit, I guess, would have been when we work IPOs. When they IPO, that means a lot of these institutional investors buy up their shares and then it's available in the market. And so SoftBank would have made that difference. And for that reason, uh, and, and now, like, they realize, boy, there's a lot of it. We work is just burning a bunch of cash. They made, they're burning so much cash than they're actually making, and that's going to be actually a huge issue, especially if they decide to IPO and and mm-hmm. the public market realizes that it's not a safe investment, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of different things to think about it, but we're seeing mm-hmm. like we're seeing interesting companies that don't have like strong fundamentals getting funded, and part of the all the time, funded, yeah, the and, time. and and part of the reason they get funded is again, uh, they're hot, right? Like, and I think with China, like speed is part of the game. So you mm-hmm. see companies like Luckin that is doing ridiculous, mm-hmm. which is basically like their their the their whole coffee model is not the most profitable, but hopefully the gamble here is their the, the, how much data they're able to collect could, that could hopefully be useful out of line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're burning so much cash just doing their business, right? And and they're hot. Like a lot of people are talking about it. Everyone is like looking this, looking that. It becomes a hot deal. And so if you're in it early or if you're in it at some point, you get in as a company continues to grow based on the hype. Someone else buys your biggest stake, you make your money off of it. And so that cycle of venture capital, I think, really disgusted uh, Gary. Mm. And that's kind of what he's talking about. And that really demonstrates how the venture capital world, in a way, has become a financial instrument for investors. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and may no longer actually spur innovation as it used to, right? Yeah. The hottest yeah. idea may not get the best funding. It's more of like, who's well-connected, who has, you know, who's who, and and what's kind of hot at, right now has creates these kind of issues and not necessarily, like, and not necessarily, like, what uh, what is actually, like, solving a great problem for the world. That's why people like yeah. Elon Musk are able mm. to make it happen, right? So he, 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 you know, he created Zoom, like, X-O-M-M, X-O-M, merged it with PayPal back with his boy Peter Thiel, Yada yada, mm. got his big exit, and now after he made all that money, he's like, okay, I want to actually solve problems that I really care about. Electric cars, let's do it. <laughs> Which yeah. no sensible person is going to be like, huh? Electric cars, cool idea, sure, but you're really trying to compete with Ford in the U.S. Mm. to mm. <laughs> make these cars, and it's because he has so much money 
he's able to do it. He has his own money to bet on himself. Same thing with SpaceX. Like, what? You're gonna spend all these money, all this money on rockets, and yeah. maybe it'll work. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has he has that benefit as as being someone that has been a successful entrepreneur to be able to use his own money and spur innovation in that sense. So innovation purists in that sense would be like great. It's perfect. And actually in fact this is what venture capitalists should strive to invest in. Unfortunately to a certain degree these days, uh quite often venture capital has become a um a financial instrument and entrepreneurs need to internalize that. Yeah. Right? And not and, and not be that, naive. Like, not be naive. Yeah. Not be naive, yeah. You just gotta know. And I think that's what happens. Like a lot of entrepreneurs Two main entrepreneurs are just naive, and it's super sad. Like, wow, uh, they they're passionate. They're they're solving an issue that they really care about, and uh, but they would they would they would be at such a huge service to themselves if they like understood these market dynamics. That way, some of the hurdles they have to overcome would be addressed accordingly. Right, so. Uh, here's a good example. I, this is, mm-hmm. I can speak about this from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Like fundraising is such a funny concept to me because uh, entrepreneurs have to fundraise to grow, right? A lot of times at the early stage, they're burning more cash. They're using a lot more cash than they're actually making in just so that mm-hmm. they can, again, have the right talent, pay the right people the right amount, uh, get these fundamentals going, and then spend money trying to get clients. And then mm-hmm. down the line, the revenue will overcome the costs and then they'll scale accordingly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that takes a lot of like operational expertise and uh, op- uh, operational um, like skills, etc. And time. Yeah. Yeah. But on top of that, they have to wear the fundraising hat, which as I mentioned for the last like, how, how long are we, 45 minutes? That yes. is, a whole, is a whole game. It's a whole game of like who you know, how big your network is, crafting the narrative of how, how why you're specifically the person to fix this issue etc et yeah. and uh, then that takes up time and that's time not spending your business and mm. quite often you can be like okay i'm gonna focus on the full time but then who's gonna take, take care of your business right and that's why like having a yeah. co-founder etc is important and that's why a lot of like venture capitalists like care about co-founders that people that have that experience right no yeah experience but also like Companies that are founded by two or two people usually uh, it's usually a good balance too. Uh, three is cut, pushing it. Four is ridiculous, uh, but two to three co-founders, meaning like they come together to create and they're owners of the entity of the company, right? They all register the company under their names and and, and it's their entity. Mm-hmm. They usually do well because they're they all have stake in the success of this company. They're all putting in time and effort and. Yeah, and if they're doing it right, they're not necessarily paying themselves. They're again, they're, all the money that they're generating is going straight back to the business, so they can continue to grow. Uh, only then can you actually like trust other folks to run your business, while maybe you can focus on fundraising, and other person can focus on business development, and the other person right. can potentially focus on the tech side of things, right? And or if you the have a product business, itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you have a different business, uh, again, like you allocate accordingly to the key drivers of your business. Right. Uh, yeah, but what if you're but if you're a solo founder, it's tough because you have to wear all these hats, and uh, it's just it's just very difficult to wear all these hats well. Right, uh, and that's 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 also connected to going back to like you said, having two or three. Um, 
it makes sense to have someone on board who knows how the investor thinks. So that way you don't, you, you, you can crack through those naive blocks very quickly. You can have that person on your team that says, no, it's not about the dream. It's not about the passion. It's about this. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of startups lack that. Would you say that as well? Because like you said, they're so driven by their passion and solving the problem and this big idea that they kind of get lost. That's true. Yeah. And I would totally agree. I would, I would agree with that statement. And I think part of it is also the problem of just like stories. I think, mm. uh, I, I, as a podcast creator yourself, you understand the power of stories behind things, right. And how you craft a narrative and yeah. you hear a lot of successful entrepreneurs that talk about like, dude, if it wasn't for my drive and my love for this industry and this passion of mine, yeah. I wouldn't have made it. And yeah. you know, sometimes people forget to ask like made it through what? You would assume mm-hmm. it's just like the operational struggles of like making a company work, but the whole politics of like fundraising, competitors, uh, internal conflict within founders, which happens so often, right? All the uh, time. Exactly. The and that's time. actually like what's actually one of the bleeding reasons why companies fail. Not because they have a bad business and not because they're not making money. It's just because core uh, like a disagreement as to where the business should go between founders. Yeah, creates beef and and then when you don't have a good team culture, that just like drives the business down to the ground. So, yeah, yeah, those I have drivers I, are quite important. I have two very important questions for you because I know we're running out of time, but the conversation is so the conversation is so good. Okay, you know what I wanted? I've always thought of, and I want to know if you agree. Mm. The balance between these angels investing in you. Uh, and your ability to bring this, make this idea profitable versus the idea. You understand what I mean? Would you say it's like, okay, I would say it's 60, 40, 60% your ability to bring this idea to life and 40% the idea. What would you say it is based on your, obviously you're the expert and, and you have the experience. How off am I? <laughs> Cause that's how I really well, feel. I, you can feel that way, and that's great. And I can feel some type of way. That's great. And the, and and <laughs> then the I investors you, can feel can some I, type of way as well. And it just really depends. Can From I tell my you my reasoning? Can I tell sure, you yeah, my yeah. reasoning break first it down, before? Break it down. Okay, this is why. Because when you're in, like you said earlier, when you're in this early stage of your business, you don't have a successful model. There is nothing. It's such a massive risk. So what's an idea? An idea on its own is absolutely nothing. Yeah, this is a great idea, but so what? So I feel like you're really investing in the person more so than the idea. You're investing in their ability to make this idea happen. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like it's more about the person behind the idea than the idea itself. So I feel like it's 60% the person and then 40% the idea because an idea on itself is nothing. It's all about the person who can drive that and make that happen. So that that's my reasoning. That's how I kind of sure. break it down in my head. Okay, so now you can tell me the facts. That's great. <laughs> uh, I, I can only speculate as well. Again, I yeah. haven't been in the game too long. Yeah. So you said what? 40% uh, idea? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'd probably put it down to maybe 35, 30. Wow, I wasn't too uh, far off. Okay, okay. I, it's not too far off. I mean, only like 5%, 10% difference, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Because again, like everyone's got an idea 
only few can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Right. But the idea also needs to be like a fire that drives you. Right. So I guess to a certain degree, that's still quite important. Um, and so there's actually a very interesting segue to I can potentially plug in like one of the interesting companies that I uh, admire. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a company called Entrepreneur First. Okay. Uh, they start off in London and mm-hmm. they've scaled up to have very various offices around the world. And uh, another company called Antler, which kind of do a similar thing. They're competitors okay. uh, business model-wise. And so what do they do? They, they're, they're in the venture capital world, right? Mm-hmm. They invest. But instead of investing in an idea or a company, they invest in people, which I guess mm-hmm. inherently become companies later on. But uh, that's got a good way to think about it. So what they do is they recruit a source, a bunch of, like, I guess really seemingly talented people i say mm-hmm. seemingly because it's really tough to really gauge unless you know them but you know right. they, they, do, they do their homework via like scouting via linkedin or internal reference refer, refer, references etc they find mm-hmm. people that they feel are gonna be well suited to do a startup and do it well uh, because mm. you know they maybe they've been in the banking world for 20 years and clearly when you've been in the bank system for 20 years You've seen a few problems here and there that the industry oh yeah vice versa sure. maybe you've been in the airspace industry and uh for a while right and there's something you, you can potentially see a problem to be fixed there right like people that have like these deep industry expertises or have a deep technical knowledge right like like a super deep expert in like neural network right so that means okay cool so they have the potential to create to invent some sort of really cool ai based uh, solution or mm-hmm. Or these people that have worked for, like, I don't know, they've co-founded, like, three or four startups. Like, okay, clearly, they've co-founded startups multiple times. They're very skilled in the the world of entrepreneurship. So they they try Mm -hmm. to find these, like, really talented people that have these interesting backgrounds and then pitch them this idea where, hey, why don't you come to us where we will, you know, put put you through a program, I guess, similar to an accelerator. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not even really teaching. Part of it is teaching, yeah, but... We put you in this program where uh, you're effectively going to be networking with a bunch of people just like you that have mm-hmm. either like a domain expertise, uh, an actual expertise, or like, again, that, that have a super entrepreneurial mindset. You come together, you bounce ideas off each other, you do a bunch of workshops, you do a bunch of like different exercises to then find a co-founder, in which case, mm-hmm. and, and from these exercises, you will create... You will create a startup together, and then once you do that, you know by the end of the program, we'll choose the best ones, invest in them, and you two together have basically effectively started a company in like twelve weeks. Wow! And then from that point on, you, the sky is yours. And yeah. uh, so, Entrepreneur First has been doing this since like the company's been around since twenty twelve, but the actual I guess, I guess uh, I'm sorry, twenty eleven, but I guess mm. they're this specific model of theirs maybe started in 2013. I think in 2011 okay. it was much more like a, a, a non-profit organization that started helping like aspiring entrepreneurs, but then shifted it to this. It was created by former McKinsey folks. And then Antler mm-hmm. is doing the same thing, right? Finding these really talented people, putting in them in a room and going, making them through the, making the, obviously like super vetting them. Like they, it's actually very hard to be selected for these kind of programs. Just of get course. tapped on the shoulder and then 
even after that, you do through multiple rounds, and then you do the program, and then along the way, people like drop out as well, etc. And then, but by the end of it, you'll have like a bunch of startups that are created by the end of like week twelve, week thirteen, and then they have an, they all have this <laughs> internal investment committee that invests in just a handful of those startups, maybe like a third of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then from and then those guys then get an opportunity to pitch to a bunch of investors within Antlers or Entrepreneurs Network, to which then they get maybe potential investment. But the idea is they, these really talented people that have these unfair advantages, right? Like whether it be how much time they spend in the industry or they have a really cool insight and they can arbitrage the market in a certain way. And because they also get a chance to work together and figure out if their personalities or their, uh, work well together and via these exercises, if they're producing, that's also, that's also a very important metric. Like it's cool if you're vibing well, but if you're not producing, that's also a very bad sign. Together, you need to be productive. They mm. do that. And then they're really trying to arbitrage this interesting thing that venture capitalists are trying to do, which is basically like finding this company, finding these companies that have a core founding team that has a, a completely unfair advantage to the market and and are again skilled enough to really address the problems that they are trying to solve. And the way that these that Antler and Entrepreneur First kind of does it is they try to push the founders to think about, hey, don't think about building what you want. Think about building what you can, right? From mm. what you've learned, your experience, whatever, what have you seen that needs to be fixed? And based on your tool set, you could be the best person to fix it. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So a good yeah. pairing would be like I don't know. Like, let's say, for example, uh, here's a cool example. There's a company under uh, Entrepreneur First Portfolio called uh, Tractable. Yeah. Right. Tractable. And they, their okay. whole thing is like, yeah, uh, they their whole thing is like trying to uh, uh, process claims, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I think the founders have had experience in the in, in the insurance industry, uh, mm-hmm. and then they are using it as school tech internally that maybe one of their co-founders or CTO probably has and together based on those that that background they decided to fix the issue of claims and now they're actually one of their most successful companies in their portfolio if I'm not mistaken Uh, and they've only been doing this for six years right so that's kind of a really cool model and you know for you know for accelerators like us we Mm. look at those kind of companies because they're actually at a perfect stage they had they literally like by the by the time they come out of the program they've really the founders usually probably only known each other for a couple for a few months they've just got a product going together and so they would then be super useful for china accelerator or mocks in which case our curriculum is super useful because we solve the issue of having good founders now the only right. is good products and entrepreneurs yes. uh, and or whatever they also do their best to also address the business case as well and so mm. and then it's our job to also further iron it out because entrepreneurs let's be honest sometimes are quite stubborn right so you gotta like, gotta be like hey i know you're passionate about this idea whatever but you know step back and analyze the numbers and see, notice that the data is trying to tell you something that you may want right. to you may not hear so these mm. a lot of us us startup incubators, accelerators, startup resources—I guess probably a better term—try uh, to do that with founders. Uh, and mm-hmm. and part of the problem is because 
it's 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 so much easier said than done. There's also that thing to to address, but mm. that's the dance we dance. So, but companies like Entrepreneur First and Antler, mm. uh, in some way, they help eliminate risk for you guys. Because going back to what I said earlier, you're investing more so in the person. But mm-hmm. if you've got these companies who are, have already um, they've sought out the talent that they've eliminated, well, com- almost eliminate. You never really eliminate a risk, but they've reduced that risk for you in that you know, okay, there's talent, right? There's talent here. So I don't have to worry about whether they can bring this idea to life or not because they've already done that for me, right? Exactly. You have to Mm. de-risk it. And that's kind of like what the whole whole VC game is, right? You're trying to invest in, I don't know, you you want to minimize your risk. And I think uh, I've also done interviews with a bunch of our angel investors and a common theme here is for them, they really just value the team because the market and the business will change. Yeah, the team will probably stick around. So, is the team the right team to solve this problem that they're trying to solve? And so, yeah. So, Entrepreneur First tries to address, Entrepreneur First and Antler. They try to address that gap. Uh, Absolutely. Try to arbitrage well, that a little bit, and it makes investors like ourselves a bit mm-hmm. happier. You know, yeah. some are a problem because it's still a risk at the end of the day. Or still, still, you're still rolling the dice. But right. at least, you know, you can trust that you have at least a decent, good founding team, supposedly. Uh, yeah. And then after that, uh, programs like it's ourselves, just... Accelerator Mocks, take them to the next mm. level. And yes. luckily, if companies like Entrepreneur First and Antler did their job, they have, they found... Uh, uh, founders with you know a good head between their ears and are you know grounded and understand what's going on, but also are passionate, and then it'll make our job a lot easier as we try to take their business to the next level with them. And along the way, I guess we get, we make money too, so it's kind of good. <laughs> it's a uh, win-win for everybody. It's a win-win yeah, yeah. for everybody. It's and a win-win for the for the founders, for the investors, for the companies. It's just good. Yeah. It's a healthy ecosystem, you know. Yeah, I, in practice, right? Obviously, there's always like shortfalls in their in the model right uh but one thing that they try to do is you know clearly we all know and i think the many of the entrepreneurs that are like listening to your podcast also know that like it's a privilege to be an entrepreneur right like uh Mm. if it's 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 a such a huge financial burden that clearly like if you're doing relatively okay financially you have that luxury to be able to dabble in a startup otherwise you'd much more be happy with your nine to five and try to find a stable thing to do. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So to a certain degree, yeah. there's a bit of like luxury there and similar to, I guess, like traditional international development theory, uh, mm. the whole idea of like, uh, talent is equally distributed, but not opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adler and entrepreneur first do this thing where they actually pay founders when they come to the program. So, if you're trying to jump ship from your job and like want to start a startup, but you're like, Hey, how am I going to start a startup with like no money or like Mm. the little money that I have for my job? It's like, nah, dude, if you know, if you're really down for it, we'll pay you a stipend to be an entrepreneur during the program. And then your job is, as we're paying you the stipend for the 12 weeks, you create a startup. So I guess that financial burden is lifted off your shoulders. And Mm. in those 12 weeks, and if you make it past the investment committee, the following maybe I don't know like a few months after that 
you have a stipend that you could definitely use to feed you, clothe you, et cetera, as you need and focus on your business. And within three to four months, you get, you get it going. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. Right. And so that they make that a bit available. So even if you're like a recent college grad or someone who's been, in the, you know, working for so long, you decide to jump ship and decide to create your own startup. They mm. give you the opportunity to, to be to be funded. Uh, yeah. to do that and so that's part of their model right and that's kind of great because it makes entrepreneurship a bit more available right is it the most perfect thing maybe not but it makes it available you're you can do it because they give you money for those three months right and then if you decide maybe it's not for you it's a bit of a tough pill to swallow to then try to come back to the working world or something like that but generally mm. speaking they try to again try to you they try to double down on your unique advantage unique skills yeah. And yeah. hopefully if the right set of other co-founders are with you in that program. You can make it happen. And, yeah. and, then, you, and then you started your company. And then uh, if anything, if it doesn't become the next, you know, Facebook, it can at least be a great company that keeps going, which, yeah, I don't know, not the best thing for investors because we want to be able to cash out. Right. But for you as a founder, <laughs> right. you, can have, you can at least do that. Right. Build a business that's sustainable and making money and is profitable. Yeah, you know, I just thought of something as as I was listening to you from the founder's perspective, going through those programs like Entrepreneur First and Antler, it also gives you a taste of what that world is like, because I know a lot of really talented people, like really, I mean, clever people, but they don't have the entrepreneurial mindset and they don't have that entrepreneurial drive, but they're bloody clever. You know what I mean? And I think by giving those types of people the opportunity to go into that kind of program, they kind of get to test the waters and see, well, is this entrepreneur? Yeah, I might be really bright. Yeah, I might, I might potentially have a good idea, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I may be good as an entrepreneur. Does that make sense? I guess, but I don't know if they want they want that. <laughs> they but that's what I'm someone- saying, though. Yeah. Do they really, when you apply, is it specifically for people who have ideas? Because when I was looking at the website, no, no, no. it's kind it's of like... I don't have ideas. Right, that's what I mean. They rather they rather you come without an idea because otherwise you you're doing a disservice to yourself. It's better right, so if you have just... like some sort of vague idea or some sort of idea you want to work on, and then right. you come there and find a, a a good person that compliments you. Got it. But they're yeah. but they're 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 digging into like a a very super talented pool of people. You know, people yeah, yeah. who are like really really clever. But that doesn't necessarily mean they might be entrepreneurial. You know what I mean? Yeah, they have like a, they might have that itch, right? Like, like yeah. a, a, a traditional, yeah. Here's a fun fact that I learned from them. Like, apparently, yeah. like management consultants are like the are pretty bad entrepreneurs. Which and ones? Management, management consultants? consultants, right? <laughs> Which I because like their whole their whole spiel is that like they optimize businesses, right? They're supposed to be great COOs, right? Right, Ideally, right. Yeah. But the problem is though. I think too often with them, at least management consultants have like this idea, they're going there and they're like, perfect. This is a good resource for me to use for my dream. And it's almost like the only child syndrome, right? Where it's like, it's very, they're very self-centered in the sense that they go there to hire a co-founder. And you're not supposed to hire a co-founder. You're supposed to find a co-founder. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They're like, okay, I'm a management consultant. I'm a management consultant. I have skills in XYZ. I'm going to hire another co-founder to, that accompany my weaknesses and together we'll create the solution but but then that kind of creates the idea like the other co-founder maybe someone that's more technically skilled like the cto or the would-be cto 
would be mm-hmm. like, what? What is this? Like, <laughs> are you bossing me around? No, we we have equal stake in this company. We're co-founders. That's like literally what it means, co-founders. And mm-hmm. that they've they've noticed that that has created problems before. And right. it's not unique to management consultants. I think there are people that are, arrive to that conclusion when they, they, they have that kind of mindset when they're approaching it. But mm-hmm. I think it's just a trend that you see, right? Because management consultants are supposedly like they try to optimize, right? That's kind of their whole thing. And yeah. a good op- like if, 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 if one perspective of thinking about this is that, hey, if you have an idea and you want to make it happen, yeah, there's a program here that like literally like lets you be a founder and they pay you to be a founder. And if you get in, your job is to find your complementary partner and then make your idea work. But it should never be your idea, right? It's supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be our idea. And right. that mindset does not really work too well for that program. It's, it, should, it should be more for people that, again, like have been working somewhere or have been doing something and they're looking for a new project to work on. And yeah. something new. And yeah. they go there to, to discover where their strengths are and where someone can complement it and together like hey it seems like our backgrounds though maybe like super far apart can come together and solve this unique problem that we've been able to realize via our exercises at the early part of the program and then once you come together you create you create the company you know entrepreneur first or antler decides to invest whatever mm-hmm. you have a minimum you have an mvp going hopefully by the end of the pro- program and then most likely your pre-revenue but if you actually get some revenue during the program even better and then you're then well versed to hit up more seasoned angel investors or seed funds, or mm-hmm. China Accelerator and stuff like that, uh, to then get nice. accelerated accordingly. And then that's kind of an interesting model. But that's like those are the people that make accessibility to entrepreneurship possible. And it goes back to our right. key question earlier about like what's more important, the idea or the person. And yes. it's it's a good combination of both, but clearly the person matters. And mm. it's like, yeah, and how and, and how well suited that person is to the idea. So they both really matter. You need them both, but um, to what degree? It's it. I don't know. I guess it's it's a it's a super art. I guess you can say. <laughs> yeah. Let's try to make it a bit more of a science, which solves a lot of problems for the venture community. Yeah, I know we've been talking specifically about angel investors, but what is the difference between the angel investor and the venture capitalist? Uh, just who it is, right? Okay. Uh, angel investors are in, uh, individuals. Right. And venture capitals are usually there. It's a fund, right? They manage okay. their group of folks that manage a fund, which is right. which has been like invested in by various people. They have like stakeholders. And of again, so they, those or people. Or family. Have, it could be a family yeah. fund. Uh, yeah, yeah, family office, et cetera. But then, family office, yeah. then those become family offices, right? They're they're a bit of a different game. Okay. Uh, they're just, they're just like again a family office. You can mm-hmm. they can do it. They can dabble in a lot of different things. They can invest in startups. They can invest in uh, private equity deals. They could be a, they can act as a private equity firm, which means like they inv- they buy shares of a company and try to sell it off at some point, et cetera. Like there's a lot of different tools you can do with family office because it's just again it's just private wealth, uh, but venture capital, usually the, the model is, again, a bunch of different people like invest in this fund together and and the partners are then deploy this capital to different projects and then hopefully they make money out of it to then pay back the fund and then pay back the investors that invested in the fund. It's, it's a whole financial instrument. <laughs> it's Whereas a whole financial. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas angel investing is you're an individual, you have some money to spare, you're looking for some cool ideas, pop, 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 you drop them off either to people around your network or great deals that you find because supposedly you're a well-connected person. Yeah. And then uh, and then you also get your kick out of entrepreneurship, right? Maybe you're Maybe entrepreneurship is not something you can do at the moment because you may have a family or maybe you're too old or maybe you don't have a great idea. You feel like you are well first to fix. So Mm -hmm. you're like, you know what? Why don't I just help young entrepreneurs and I invest in them? And that's like Mm -hmm. my my way of getting involved in entrepreneurship. So that's one way to look at angel investing. It's usually just individual investors that are trying to get involved in investing in startups. Got it. So my goodness, this has been amazing. I could talk to you forever. Because I'm very fascinated by investing because um, this network, this community that I've been building, it focuses on women with the ideas or women who just started out with the idea. And we know all the stories that we hear, particularly in the Western world, about women not getting funding and women can't get money for their businesses and all of this other stuff. So it's just a whole thing for me like I'm always researching it I'm always looking at the stats I'm always talking to people who work in the investment world and sort of getting their views and their opinions on not why it is because I think that's a redundant question but and but more on sort of what needs to happen or um is it just a matter of you know time things will change with time with each generation or is it that there needs to be a different type of funding model or like, what do you think? Like, what do you think needs to happen around? And I and I and I say this not just for the Western world because this community centers, you know, women who are based in developing economies and emerging markets. And uh, something that I've learned about China, maybe you can speak more to this, is that women don't seem to have that much problems getting funding the way they do in the Western world. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. But I know that when I speak to and I research and I I do projects with women who are based in Africa, Latin America, other parts of the world outside of the West, they seem to struggle as well. So it's not just a Western problem. It's a global problem. But maybe each country has different struggles or whatnot. So what are your thoughts on that? Let's see. Uh, I can't claim to be the most educated on this, but I do. I guess I can put in my two cents. Of course. That's what it's all uh, about. Just sharing yeah. ideas and thoughts. So, yeah, yeah. my critical mindset tells me that, like, women not getting as much funding as, has a lot to do with this macro, macro and cultural a- aspects, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning, let's look, traditionally speaking, money has, has always been controlled by uh, men, older white men, generally speaking, right? And, right, right. and to this day, those they are still the drivers in that in that uh, world in today's world. Uh, old white men, older white men, I guess, uh, are still the drivers of many things in this world. And so, as such, they carry their own biases and yada yada and all these kind of things. And clearly, in the world of investing, it's very easy to think that like it's very easy to go towards your bias and and uh, fund. A certain type of person, right? And clearly, women don't fit that bill accordingly. At the same time, there's also like statistically less women in in in, in startups and uh, especially tech startups. Tech, for some reason, uh, the women are not getting involved, are not as involved. But the good part is there's more and more because of people such as yourself and 
and and and and and just the general trend of the world understanding that like hey like not empowering the other half of the world is actually dumb and not solving the problems that we have in the world in fact one of our, so our partner my boss my boss made an interesting statement right so sosv our firm is the fifth most active investor in women uh women led startups and in the world and last year we were third so sure our ranking might have got down but that's actually great that means more and more people because we're not investing less <laughs> that also just means more and more people are investing into women and that's great and they're realizing that there's a whole literally half of the world that needs to be activated and addressing the issues of that side of the world and there are many problems that could be fixed and there are many interesting solutions that could also come from women founders right that's like in a very macro sense when you look at it in micro sense i mean it really becomes as to as to like what the dynamics of like a fundraising meeting might be right and like i said a lot of times they're they're led by older white men that have an interesting perspective on life and may not align with some some solution that a woman maybe has and therefore it's always going to be an uphill battle just like in many ways being a minority in the united states or in many different parts of the world whether it's china whether it's even in our even in africa being a minority of a certain type a certain group of people is always going to be an uphill battle because of the different uh challenges that come socioeconomically and sociologically as well right so uh those are the things i think are that are kind of driving that but luckily speaking i think people are you know venture capitalists and people like that <laughs> are realizing that it shouldn't be that way uh you know i would love to say that it's for moral reasons but clearly the money also speaks as well right like women founders tend to be quite successful so uh there is also an economic drive behind this and i think more and more people are waking up towards that why china as you mentioned earlier allows for or has shown that uh, a bit of a smoother path for funding for women i'm not 100 percent sure um i mean we've both lived here and we clearly realize that it's there's a lot of sexism towards women here as well but at the same time there's also like a lot of women empowerment as well in many different ways right like there are interesting policies here put in place that really protect women. And so many of my friends talk about how safe it is to walk outside in Shanghai and stuff like that at night. And in some ways, I guess this place, China and and and, and Shanghai and whatever, addresses uh, the needs and respects women accordingly, where where it may also come short in different ways. And so those what are what's purely driving those factors, I truly cannot comment on. Uh, but that's great, and it's always good news. And I think, uh, again, like leveraging folks that have been underrepresented in whatever community always mm -hmm. allows for greater success for the whole. And I think the community, the venture community, is realizing that more and more. And it seems like I guess the China venture community has realized it quite well as well. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, that's kind of my take on it. And that's a perfect way to end our conversation. <laughs> that was perfect. Thank you so much. You were just a fountain of knowledge, just everywhere. And you explained everything so simply and so well. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to I, do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I hope you can come back on again at some point 
Um, maybe later on when things have evolved with my platform as well, it'll be interesting to have you back on board oh, for, for sure, another for chat. Sure. And let me know what I can do, you know, to help your platform as well. Happy to to help other folks with uh, with a project. You know, it's always great to to help out, and uh, that's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. I enjoy working with people. Uh, yeah. And the satisfaction that you know helping someone brings is always great. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's it for now, folks. Bye for now. All right. Bye bye. Hey there, Rare Ones. I hope you enjoyed listening into this week's conversation. The Rare Birds podcast is available for listen across all major platforms, including Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Anchor, and several more. Please share our conversations with your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can do so by opting in on our homepage of our website, www.rarebirdshq.com. The weekly newsletter provides analysis and data around the topics explored in our weekly conversations. Lastly, I would love your feedback and spend way too much time on Twitter. My handle is included in the notes section of each episode. Tweet me your thoughts, ideas, opinions, and feedback because I'm always looking for ways to improve my craft. If you absolutely love what you heard, then rate us on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week for more conversation. Bye for now. 